The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. We have now become accustomed to looking forward to the last dance every Sunday night, and once again, it did not disappoint. This is the Hoop Ball Chicago Bulls podcast on the Hoop Ball Network, and we are reviewing episodes five and six of the Last Dance documentary. My name is Greg Moraz, your host, as always. Thank you very much for checking out the show. If you have not listened to any of our prior episodes, make sure you go back and do so. If you have not listened to our reviews of parts one and two and parts three and four of The Last Dance, those are our two most recent episodes, you can go back and listen to those as well. Make sure that you write a review for the show, leave a rating, and subscribe. It helps out our metrics tremendously. If you haven't checked out the other shows on the Hoopball Network, make sure that you do that as well. So, I will be up front with you right away. I did not like episodes 5 and 6 as much as I did episodes 3 and 4 and even 1 and 2. That's not to say that they weren't good, because they were both very solid pieces of documentary work that encapsulated really two different eras, and that's what this show has been doing. It's been bouncing back and forth between prior timelines and the 97-98 season. This show really didn't have as much of a focus on the 97-98 season. It was tracking the team as they got as they got closer and closer to the playoffs in that 97-98 season. And the one moment from that season which really does a nice job of going back in time once they bring up that moment is Jordan's last regular season game at Madison Square Garden where he decides to break out the Jordan 1 shoe. And that shoe was the first shoe that he wore when he signed with Nike. And he even said during the interview how much it was hurting him but he was playing so well, he didn't want to take the shoes off. But the fact that he brought out a shoe from 1984 to play 14 years later, I mean, even back then, shoe technology advances over the course of 14 years are exponential in growth. So Jordan was really gutting it out based on how painful those shoes were relative to what he was wearing during the 97 and 98 season. The Nike angle was a really fascinating backstory. I didn't realize how small of a company Nike was at the time and how Jordan wanted to be an Adidas guy, but that Adidas as a company was not in a position to build their brand around Michael Jordan. And Nike at that time was an upstart. You think about Nike in the modern sense of the brand, you don't think of it as an upstart. You think of it as the global shoe brand of our generation. And it was not that back then. And the marketing idea of the Air Jordan was absolutely brilliant because it took the model of the shoe and the style that Jordan played with and blended them together in almost perfect harmony. And you think of Air Jordan, you think of Michael Jordan, but you also think of Nike and Jordan as synonymous. I mean, Jordan even has his own brand within the Nike label now. Like, there are a lot of schools now that wear the Jordan brand of jerseys instead of just regular Nike jerseys. I know that Michigan has the Jordan brand jerseys. 
And Jordan Sneakers becoming a cultural phenomenon. I mean, Spike Lee directed his commercials. And you saw from that one scene in Do the Right Thing when Giancarlo Esposito's character, Bugging Out, has his shoes ruined by the guy on the bike in the Larry Bird jersey. And him making a big deal about it because they are Jordans. Because the brand of Michael Jordan at that time was taking over the merchandise landscape. That's what Jordan's partnership with Nike did. And I wish that they had actually expounded on that a little bit more. I know that they somewhat pumped it out as much as they could. But just going into the modern day and being able to compare it to what Nike means in the modern day, and you think about the University of Oregon, Phil Knight U, and what they've done at that school and what Nike has done across college and how Nike has taken over the media landscape in terms of its brand on society. I would have liked to have seen the compare and contrast with what Nike is now to what Nike was then and how Jordan influenced the brand to what it is now and how he still is influencing the brand now. That's one of the things that I didn't like about Episode 5 as much. I like the fact that we got the backstory behind Jordan and Nike. I would have liked to have seen it expanded on more because I feel like there's a little bit more of a storyline there that we're not getting. So let's move on to the 1992 NBA Finals. They said that the 92 team had more fun than the 91 team because the pressure of not winning a title was off their back, and it seemed like that team played pretty freely. And it looked like, from at least what we saw in the documentary, that the Bulls had a whole heck of a lot of fun during that stretch run. But the competitiveness of Michael Jordan showing that he didn't want Clyde Drexler to show him up, and he wanted to make sure that Clyde knew that Jordan was the best and nobody was coming for him. Because it seemed like, and granted we didn't hear from Clyde Drexler in the film, but it seemed like Clyde Drexler was pretty confident that he could take Michael Jordan. And as it went, that was not the case. I loved the story of Magic Johnson saying he was working the finals for NBC Sports and having Michael continually look over to him every time he made a big shot or every time he was able to score against Clyde. And the shrug game, the game where he shrugs to the sideline, that is one of the more iconic moments in the history of Michael Jordan. So looking at that and seeing what Jordan had in trying to be the best and never wanting to lose, he took that challenge against Clyde Drexler personally. And that really shifted into the aura of the 1992 Olympic team, which was the first time that NBA players had been allowed to compete in the Olympics because it had been mostly an amateur sport up until then. And you talk about the dream team. I mean, that was the dream team. You had Jordan, Pippen, Bird, Magic, Charles Barkley. You know, you can keep naming guys. Gary Payton. I mean, that was the best of the best of that era. And guess who was one of the best of the best of that era but wasn't on that team? That's right, Isaiah Thomas. Because, as it's pretty well known from what you've seen in this documentary, or if you were around him at the time, nobody liked Isaiah Thomas. Nobody wanted to play with Isaiah Thomas. And the genuine discovery of the hatred that Jordan had for Thomas during the end of that 91 Eastern Conference Finals, it came through again 
in episode five. And not just from Jordan, but from others that were on that team and them saying, we know Isaiah might be one of the best players in the NBA and could deserve to be on this team, but nobody liked him and nobody wanted to play with him. And I'll say this, I don't think there's a guy that is as hated in the city that he grew up in as much as Isaiah Thomas is hated in Chicago. And I don't think that this documentary has done anything to change anyone's mind about how they feel in regards to Isaiah Thomas. But I love the fact that we get this contrast of the 92 Olympic team with Jerry Krause's courtship of Croatian superstar Tony Kukoc. Now, we don't get a ton of about Kukoc in this episode. We get Kukoc in his European playing days and him as the next coming of an NBA superstar and Jerry Krause being at all of these EuroLeague games wanting to bring Kukoc over to the United States. And it was to no fault of Tony Kukoc, but Michael Jordan wanted to prove that he didn't need Tony Kukoc, that he didn't want Tony Kukoc, and he wanted to beat Kukoc's brains in, which... He did twice, and they contained Kukoc to the best of their abilities in their pool game and eventually in the finals. I didn't realize that the gold medal game was between the U.S. and Croatia. I didn't realize how good Croatia was in basketball until you saw this documentary. And granted, I was barely alive at the time of the 92 Dream Team. In fact, I think I was born after that Olympics actually concluded. So I wasn't alive yet. That was 27, soon to be 28 years ago. Jeez, I'm talking myself into how old I am at this point, but never mind that. The point being that the United States, during that Olympics, took basketball to the world stage and asserted the United States as the world's basketball power. And while it was everybody that had an influence in American basketball contributing to that, Michael Jordan, once again, led the charge. And it showed that his influence was global at that point. But there's this little rivalry of him and Jerry Krause that keeps coming up in different scenarios. And in this scenario, it was him defeating Krause's prized project, Tony Kukoc, who would eventually join the Chicago Bulls. And I feel like Tony Kukoc didn't get a whole lot to say in Episode 5. Maybe there wasn't a whole lot for him to actually talk about if they're specifically trying to focus on the 1992 Olympics instead of his rise with the Bulls in the late 90s. Although I feel like they're going to get to that more eventually. One note, though, that I brought up in a prior episode that I think is worth again bringing up in terms of Jordan's connection to the world there is a photo of a Lithuanian basketball player in those finals taking pictures of Michael Jordan that was Lithuania's Arturis Karnaschovas so the Bulls executive VP of basketball operations was enamored with Jordan back then and by the way we're going to get to our episode on new Bulls GM Mark Eversley coming up a little bit later this week I promise you we are going to do a deep dive into Mark Eversley, but there was a great quote from Arturis Karnaschovas when he held his news conference that he had hired Eversley, and he said that he was watching The Last Dance, and he was just so inspired by Jordan at the time, 
he just felt like he was in the mood to call up Eversley and try and hire him on that Sunday night when they were watching episodes three and four because his original plan was going to be to hire him the next morning. And he was able to get him on the phone that night, and that's why you saw that Woj bomb that night that Eversley had been hired as the GM because Karnaschovas was so inspired by the last dance that he wanted to hire his man right then and now. Tonight also got into some of the darker sides of Michael Jordan and how the spotlight was wearing on him. And that really came to the forefront in the 1993 playoffs, in particular the 1993 Eastern Conference Finals against the New York Knicks. And the Knicks, as they said in the show, replaced the Detroit Pistons as the physical tough opponent that the Bulls were going to have to overcome. And that 1993 Eastern Conference Finals was probably the most adversity that Jordan had had to face during the first three championships. Any series in the first three championships, that was the most difficult. Because you could tell that Jordan was in the spotlight all the time. And the cameras were always on him. And he was always in the public light. And people wanted to know his every move and figure out exactly where he was. And you could tell he was worn down by it all. He just wanted to be left alone. And he needed certain outlets to earn some privacy and as well as to give himself a release of emotion and endorphins that he couldn't do unless he was on the basketball court. He just wanted to get away from it all. The Atlantic City trip that he made between games one and two of the Eastern Conference Finals in New York, people made a big deal about that. And for Michael, I don't think he saw it as as big of a deal until right before the finals started. And the Bulls played a great series to come back and will their way to a series victory against the Knicks. But it was weighing down on him. And that's where you get that scene of Ahmad Rashad, the longtime voice of NBC Sports, saying that Michael called him and asked him if they could get a camera so that he could do an interview to talk about all of the gambling stuff. And MJ saying that he doesn't have a gambling problem, he has a competition problem. And I love the fact that Will Perdue was talking about how you had the back of the plane where they were playing for high money, and Michael was always in those games, and you had Will Perdue and B.J. Armstrong and John Paxson at the front of the plane, they were playing $1 hands, and I believe he was saying that Michael Jordan would come to the front of the plane and would play in the $1 hands just so that he could win, so that he could have their dollar in his pocket. So for Jordan to say that he had a competition problem and not a gambling problem, I don't know if I totally buy that. I 100% believe that Michael Jordan had a gambling problem. And I'm surprised, and I'm sure that we're going to see it in either Episode 7 or Episode 8, how his gambling issues probably forced him to step away from the NBA for those two years. There's a lot of hearsay about whether or not the NBA actually issued him a suspension for the 93-94 season, and he just kept that under wraps. Jordan did play those 17 regular season games in 94-95, but... The Bulls did lose to the Orlando Magic in the Eastern Conference Finals that season, so it wasn't as if Jordan had a big impact. But he does this interview with Ahmad Rashad to address the gambling issues, and he says it's a competitiveness issue, and I just quite frankly don't buy it. There are a lot of stories out there about Michael Jordan losing 
six figures at a time on the golf course. There was one story floating out there that he once lost $1.2 million in a single round of golf. And people kept saying in the documentary that he would just keep going and going until he won his money or until he broke even or until he felt like he was satisfied with the win. And Charles Barkley did a really good job on his interview with Scott Van Pelt on the Sports Center that they aired after episode six of him describing Michael Jordan's gambling in contrast with his own because people know that Barkley has had his gambling issues and his addiction to gambling at times and basically Barkley saying that Jordan kept playing until he won. So everybody knew, even the most hardcore of gamblers in the NBA community, how much gambling was a part of Michael Jordan's everyday life. The series against the Suns, I think, as Phil Jackson described it, was indeed a roller coaster. It was the first time that Jordan had to face the league's MVP in the finals because the first two years that he had played in the finals... He was the league's MVP, and the best players against him were Magic Johnson in the 91 Finals and Clyde Drexler in the 92 Finals. But Charles Barkley was the league's best player in 93, and you could tell that Jordan still was bitter about the fact that he wasn't the MVP that year. And Charles Barkley said it in his interview with Van Pelt that the only game that they weren't ready to play in was Game 1. He said that he didn't have his team ready, and he knew that if he had had his team ready, they probably would have put up a better fight, but that you needed to be 100% ready when you're facing the caliber of a player as Michael Jordan and in the era where they're going for their third in a row. I hadn't realized also, by the way, that no team had won three straight championships since the Boston Celtics won three straight from 1964 to 1966. So to put that in perspective, what the Bulls were trying to do was very rare air. And something else that I found really interesting in another one of these Jerry Krause versus Michael Jordan battles is his obsession with Dan Marley. I mean, Dan Marley was a good player, but Dan Marley was no Michael Jordan. I mean, maybe he wanted Dan Marley as a complimentary player, but I'm looking at some of Dan Marley's statistics. In 1992-93, points a game, 4.7 rebounds, 3.8 assists. Good numbers, not spectacular. 91-92, 17.3 points per game, his highest ever points per game average. Dan Marley was nothing special. I mean, he had some good years with the Suns, but once he went to the Cavs in 95-96, he fell down from 15.6 points per game to 10.6 points per game. So I just found it really interesting how Jerry Krause seemingly wanted to pick up Dan Marley and how Michael Jordan basically said, nah, I'm going to take this guy and I'm going to absolutely own him throughout the course of the entire series. Because as we've come to see, that's what Michael Jordan did. He found an opponent. He found a reason to be motivated for that opponent, and he went out and he owned them. Michael Jordan's competitiveness is what makes him the defining athlete of our generation, in my opinion, and one of the things that this documentary has done a great job of pointing out. Michael Jordan's will to win is as great as anybody in human history and certainly the greatest of anybody in the history of American sports. 
And Charles Barkley, and I know that I referenced something that wasn't in the documentary, when he was talking with Scott Van Pelt, and I would agree with this, there's only two athletes in all of modern-day sports that have that type of attitude. It was Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods, and nobody else comes close. Those two guys had the drive, the will, the determination, the nothing-can-defeat-me attitude as individuals that nobody else had. I would agree with that. And with that, we are done here on our review of The Last Dance, Episodes 5 and 6. We will have an episode out a little bit later this week talking about new Bulls GM Mark Eversley. And then next Monday, it will be the Episode 7 and 8 review of The Last Dance. We hope that you have enjoyed this Episode 5 and 6 review. My apologies if I sound a little bit under the weather. I'm hopefully not getting sick. I've been social distancing and all of that good stuff, but I am hopefully not sick. I feel good except for a couple of snivels here and there, but please stay home, social distance, make sure that you do your part in flattening the curve. Have a great rest of your week, everybody, and as always, Go Bulls! This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.